And when I woke up one morning and my first and last name were the header of a PBS news article, I was really dumbfounded um, in realizing that this had grown that big. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 99 with Sarah Hastings. I initially met Sarah at the Big Mass Tiny House Festival, where she appeared on the panel discussion about building a tiny house with reused and salvaged materials. That was episode 94, if you want to give it a listen. But I was really interested in Sarah's story of going up against the town that she lived in, in Massachusetts, and ultimately being forced to move out of her tiny house and leave. Rather than flying under the radar, Sarah decided to be public about her tiny house, and the consequences and the resulting actions didn't go the way that she had hoped. It's a really interesting story, and I think it's instructive for how things can be done differently when you're trying to live legally or just live in a tiny house. I really hope you stick around for my conversation with Sarah Hastings. But first, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is the super helpful guidebook that I wrote five years ago to share all of the knowledge and decisions that I made to build my own tiny house, along with what I did right, what I did wrong, and how I would change things. The guidebook is now in its second edition. It's been completely rewritten and expanded to reflect how tiny houses are being built today. And it also includes several new tiny house stories from other tiny house dwellers. The guidebook has been expanded to include things like SIPs and metal framing and all the different kinds of insulations that are being used in tiny houses. And I seriously think this is the most helpful thing you can buy if you are thinking about living in a tiny house. If you go through the guidebook from start to finish, you will have a solid plan for all the systems and everything that's going to go into your tiny house. The second edition has been a long time in the making, and I'm really excited to share it with the world. To learn more, you can head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD. All right. I am here with Sarah Hastings. Sarah lives in Western Massachusetts, where she is involved in local agriculture and traditional craft. She takes pride in living year-round in her self-built tiny house on wheels, which she completed using local and salvaged materials in 2015. At first, her rustic routines and elegant aesthetic preferences might seem like a contradiction. However, she will be happy to share with you the feelings of abundance and opportunity that her simple lifestyle nurtures. Sarah Hastings, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be a part of this show. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, I've been following your home for a while now, and it was great to meet you at the the Big Mass Festival back in the fall. Um, Maybe we could start since podcasting is a non-visual medium, could you describe your house to us, the rhizome? Sure. Um, Yeah, like you mentioned, my tiny house is on wheels. It's on a trailer, which is about 27 feet long. 
And it is a gooseneck trailer. So if you visualize a normal flatbed trailer, it also has a portion that is raised above where the back of a pickup truck would go. And that is where my bedroom lies up there. The main floor, which is about 23 feet long, has both a little kitchen and a little living living room area, I guess you could say. So your house was built with um, a high percentage of, of salvaged and reused materials, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, could you... T- talk about some of the some of the unique materials that went into it and you were actually on a, a panel discussion from the Big Mass Festival where you told us all about your your reused trailer that was used to pull tanks which is kind of amazing what are some other pieces of the house that that came from reused or salvaged sure so the highlight of my house i like to say is the set of trusses that hold up the roof system. And um, those timbers, they're really thick timbers, and it's actually um, assembled using traditional timber framing methods. And the actual timber comes from a furniture factory that was dismantled in Gardner, Massachusetts, which was the furniture capital, the industrial furniture capital of the United States for a little while. And so... um, that town has seen its industry fall and along with it, a lot of the factories have fallen as well. But um, I really was interested in reusing materials from that. And you can even see some of the little nail holes and remnants of how that was used. Yeah. I'll post some pictures on the show notes page for the episode. So people who are listening can, can check it out. Yeah. How long did you spend collecting these materials before you actually started building? Let's see. I started collecting materials. I started collecting materials well before I started to build and even before I got my trailer. So first of all, I discovered um, some basic furniture that I was attracted to and I'd collect it in my apartment that I was living in during college. The first piece of furniture that I found was a Hoosier cabinet on Craigslist. Um, This cabinet just had a lot of different compartments and different components that I thought would be really great in a small space. So I got that. And then shortly after that, I began collecting different windows from salvage yards and from reuse stores like the habitat reuse store nice so so as you collected the materials oh sorry go ahead i was going to say probably i was collecting materials for two full years before i started building wow that's a real that's a real commitment you know to to be going through that process for two years and not starting the build must have taken some patience Yes, I was very eager, but um, meanwhile, I was still collecting the materials for the actual structure of the building. So, so it was all going to come together. Nice. So what sources did you use to find some of these more unique pieces, such as like the beams or the trailer? Well, I did rely a lot on the internet, first of all. Uh, my trailer came from Craigslist. Um, some of my window sources I discovered 
by clicking around on Craigslist and eBay. But then some of my more interesting materials just came came to me after communicating with friends, colleagues, mentors, and bridging those connections. And after a while, people would come to me saying they might, you know, have something that could be useful. One example of that is one of my mentors who was helping me along. He had a son who had just renovated his house and had um, some scrap bamboo flooring. And the scrap from his renovation was actually enough to cover the entire floor of my trailer. So that was really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So how long did the build itself take to complete? Let's see, probably about a year and a half total, but that was working on weekends and sporadically throughout the week. So it wasn't every single day. And then, of course, it slowed down a bit in the wintertime. Yes, it is difficult to work on the tiny house in the winter, especially on the inside. Yeah, New England winter. That winter, actually, we saw a record-breaking number of inches of snow, so it was quite crazy. But even on those snow days, I was out there um, getting some hours in. Very nice. And so have you been living in the house full-time since since you completed it? No, I lived in the house for one full year as soon as I completed it. And then I took a three-year hiatus where I was not living in it at all, and it was actually in storage. And I actually moved back into it this past April. So now I'm rounding about another year. Wow, congratulations for for getting back to it. I had I didn't realize that you you had taken a hiatus. Yes, yes, it was um more because I couldn't find a place to live in it and my one year living in it um was totally rattled with a lot of legal challenges. So after that I took a break and um Now that I've meandered my way back to living in it, I couldn't be happier. It definitely feels like the right move for me to be reunited with it. Well, that's great that you're back in it. Um, I did want to ask you about some of those those legal challenges because I I remember seeing some news stories. I think that's how I initially found out about you was just in the tiny house Facebook groups, you know, Maybe you posted or somebody posted a link to a news story about about your legal battle, I guess you could call it. Could you could you tell us the story? Totally. Yeah. If you were to Google my name with the word tiny house next to it, you'll get a lot of different articles because I was very public about living in my tiny house after I graduated. And I found myself in a town that wasn't as pro, um, I found myself in a town that wasn't, was a little bit more conservatively planned than I had initially thought. And so my journey um, unraveled from there. I, when I was met with a zoning violation, which wasn't entirely unexpected. I was actually in touch with this town in Western Massachusetts before I even moved my house into that town. I went to the town hall, described what I was doing, received some information, and um, the building inspector had known 
what I was doing. And he kind of just gave me the heads up that after um, um, 60 days or was it 90 days, that if anyone were to complain about the structure, then he would that he would then have to enforce the zoning code, which stated that there were no trailers allowed in or to be resided in in the, that town. So I knew what I was doing was not allowed, but I told him I was going to be working. I was going to be working on this anyways, trying to find a way to do it legally. And I was very after graduating from this liberal arts school. I had I was just very eager and very optimistic that I could do this. And um, this whole process was expedited when I received the zoning violation and I went to the Zoning Board of Appeals to try to appeal this violation and, and ask a way that I could stay. And when I went to this meeting where there were like four or five representatives from the office in the town, I asked them, if I could just stay until the town meeting that following May, where I would present a zoning bylaw and the town could vote if they liked this model of housing. And if they voted yes, then perhaps I'd be able to stay. And if not, then that would be the date that I would leave. And miraculously, they, um, they allowed it, um, even though they definitely did not have to. So for the following, was it four or five months I worked on writing a zoning code, hiring a lawyer, creating lots of different petitions and fundraisers to fuel this project. And um, it was was really an amazing time uh, during which there were a lot of different newspaper articles fueling a debate and a very big controversy, bigger than I could have foreseen. And when I woke up one morning and my first and last name were the header of a PBS news article, I was really dumbfounded um, in realizing that this had grown that big. Yeah, there were even Boston Globe articles about this small town in Western Massachusetts where people were debating whether or not um, trailer tiny houses would be a new format for housing. It ended up failing, not to my surprise, during the vote, which I would have needed two-thirds of the vote. I actually only received one-third, the opposite proportion that I needed. But still, there was a great um, amount of support and a lot of people speaking passionately about the topic of housing and affordable housing, alternative housing. But um, that may, that was the time that I had to leave the town in Western Mass. And um, at that point in time, I put my house in storage and I went back to the drawing board for a little while and tried to determine my next moves. So I'm curious, it, it sounds like there were a lot of people opposed as well, since you only got a third of the vote. What was, what was their kind of, what was their reason for opposing tiny houses? Yes, there was a lot of opposition. And well, first of all, I think there was a certain demographic in the town. There were many folks in that town whose families had been in that town farming for generations. And so land and housing had been passed down for many, many decades and through generations. And I think this gave people a different view of property than I had anticipated. I had anticipated for farmers to be eager 
for young people to come in and want to steward the land. And that was my perspective on um, moving in with a tiny house so I could be close to the land which I wanted to work physically. But actually, I discovered that these families, they wanted to maintain what had been in place for, for their life and their parents' life and their grandparents' life. And so that was one thing, and that's one thing that I can very clearly understand, um, the heritage of the aesthetic of the town. But there was actually a lot of um, people who were just very misinformed, and I think their view of what tiny houses would bring was very skewed. For instance, I think that some information went around like, People were interpreting tiny houses as kind of trailer parks and suddenly that there would be many trailers strewn across the landscape. And that was certainly not how the bylaw was written that was presented. It was very regimented in that a single family home would be able to apply for a permit to have one singular tiny home in its backyard if it had certain dimensions. So those fine print, the fine print of the bylaw wasn't very well translated. And that was kind of um, an error of the planning board um, as they zoned in on very particular aspects of the issue. And yeah, that part was very unfortunate that some people just thought, you know, that there'd be an infiltration and there wouldn't be order to the new zoning ordinance. Um, there's also just some... And so... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask what your... Um, how did your zoning ordinance that you proposed address the address it for this town? Yeah, it was actually very simple. So this town had in place an ordinance for... Um, well, if single-family homeowners wanted to have an apartment within their home, they'd be allowed to do that by filing for a permit, and then the building inspector would check out the house, make sure that there was an additional kitchen and bathroom and everything was to code, and they'd be allowed to have that apartment and rent it out for some additional income. And they'd actually, they'd also pay a little bit of tax every year and it'd be on the record. And it's, it's not entirely difficult to do that. So the zoning bylaw that I wrote just worked off of that very simple bylaw, but stated that you could apply for either an interior apartment within your single family home or one that is detached for additional privacy, for additional independence. Uh, maybe if that family didn't want to have, just wanted to have something separate from their own um, living quarters. Got it. So it just kind of extended. And all of, yeah, all of the um, process would just follow the exact same, um, the same paperwork as what was already in place. Have you seen other towns in that area go the other way and kind of say yes to tiny houses? Oh, uh, well, it was definitely looked at very positively by many towns. And I think since then, there's not been very many towns that have in their bylaw the phrase tiny house, but you will see the phrase accessory dwelling unit and detached accessory dwelling mm -hmm. unit. And that has been becoming much more popular in this state of Massachusetts and um, especially in more rural areas where there is space for these 
formats of housing to develop. And uh, you also might find the phrase backyard cottage. And Massachusetts has now, on the state level, they adopted Appendix Q effective January 1st. Yes, that's very exciting. So now that the building code, the overarching building code, um, does have the term tiny house in it for the state, now it's up to each individual town to see if they can um, adopt that and incorporate it into their town's housing matrix. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's a, I guess you were, in a sense, you were a pioneer for, for the state of Massachusetts because you did, did decide to be public about it. Do you think you could have just skated by without getting you know, caught if you had decided to just live under the radar? Absolutely. A lot of people live under the radar. And I knew that I could find, I had a number of plots that were well hidden enough that I could have probably gotten away in peace without any stirring up any conversation. But at the time, I was very excited about sharing and trying to develop some change. And so I really felt like after I graduated, I, I had nothing to lose in doing this. The very worst that could happen, the very worst thing that could happen is I have to roll the house away, which is what it's built for. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was very glad to kind of create the conversation. And I could feel, I could feel something was brewing overall. Um, this concept was gaining popularity pretty quickly. And so it was very exciting to be at the forefront of that. Yeah. I know that, unfortunately, tiny houses are not one size fits all. Well, fortunately and unfortunately, every town is going to be different. But I'm curious what advice you would have for for somebody who's maybe building right now or thinking about doing a tiny house who, you know, isn't sure if it's going to be legal where they want to live. Like, what what do you advise people to well, there's a lot of layers to that. Like if if one if somebody is trying to determine if a tiny house is right for them, I would try to explain to them that um, what they're up for is a much longer conversation. And in order to find land, it's just not a very straightforward path. So there's a you have to put a lot of labor and a lot of emotional energy into that process. And if someone is ready to do that, I definitely encourage it because it's a beautiful process um, to fight for something that you're interested and invested in. But I think that a lot of people aren't ready for that reality. And yeah, I think that if you if somebody has flexibility as for where they are willing to live, that gives them you know, I think there's fewer concerns for somebody that's willing to live within a given region and not a specific town. Got it. So kind of look at the region rather than a specific town. Yeah, I think so. And um, it'd be very smart to prior prior to starting a build to actually tap in and see and have conversations within towns or with property owners or acquaintances or friends where this house might be parked and try to feel it out and see and weigh the risks 
and um, understand that backup plans are probably necessary at this point in time in the state because there are so many gray areas within the zoning codes. Yeah. So what what is your current living situation now that you are back in your tiny house? Yeah, so I actually opted to go under the radar this round. I personally, philosophically, am not against that format of living. Um, I just decided that I needed a level of freedom to express myself creatively and to live this more rustic lifestyle. Now, I definitely do have plans in the future to continue the conversation with a few specific towns that I have in mind. And I'm excited to get back into that after I have a little bit of peace. (laughs) Nice. Well, I don't know what town you're in and I won't, I won't ask you to say, cause you are under the radar. Right. I'm going to keep that um, under wraps for now. (laughs) (laughs) So, Are you living completely off-grid at this point? No, I am tied into the grid um, because I am located right near another home. And um, so I'm hooked up to the grid and I am off-grid with water during the winter time. So I have a system that I've developed with with five-gallon buckets and some different equipment that I've rigged up inside. Nice. So how does that... How does that work? Yeah, so actually, I'm pretty content with it right now. I usually fill up some buckets at the farm that I work at, tote them back to the house. And then I have found this model of miniature pressure washer, something that I think most people would use to wash their cars, or I think it was marketed towards washing like vinyl fences. Um, So it has this long hose and it plugs into the wall and it can charge up and it fits perfectly, pretty discreetly next to the sink. And I just fill that up. It holds about four gallons. And that's what I use to wash my hands and my dishes. But unfortunately, it's not enough to um, run through my hot water heater. And so I actually shower at the gym, which is a pretty simple process for me for where I'm living now. Nice. Did you make that choice because you didn't want to deal with like the heated hose and the frozen pipes and things of the winter? Or, you know, is there another reason why you you chose to not do water in the winter? Oh, exactly. So during the three other seasons, I have a garden hose, which is just an easy way to get water in. in, And I just use that for my sink and shower. But um, yeah, as the hose freezes i don't want to deal with the mess of that and i don't want to deal with heat tape that just uses too much electricity and um also where i'm living currently i knew it wasn't going to be a long-term situation and i wasn't going to invest in installing pipes like underground or anything so um yeah so i just opted for this and i'm pretty content with it that's great it sounds like you found a system that works for you and a living situation that is not uh, quite as tenuous. Yeah, it's not, not too shabby. That's awesome. So um, looking at your, at your website, um, it looks like you also have offered or do offer consulting to, to other people who are going to embark on the planning process. Um, have you gotten to work with with clients on that 
Oh yeah, for sure. I think I've had at this point, probably eight clients. It's very, you know, last winter I had maybe three or four and this winter only one. It's just something I leave up there because I have the knowledge. And if somebody is searching for solutions, they happen upon my website. I'm very available for that kind of service. For anything ranging from like design work or inquiries into the legal world. Nice. It's an important skill to offer because it's, you know, I'm actually just starting to look for a new parking spot for my tiny house. Um, the land that I've been on actually changed hands, uh, new owners, and they've asked us to to move. Not an emergency, but we do have to be out by June 1st. And I'm kind of starting to embark on the same set of questions, like what is possible? What's legal? It's mostly illegal. So do we want to go under the radar or, or what? It's, it's a lot of questions that you really have to, to ask yourself. Absolutely. And there's a number of different, I don't want to even call them loopholes, but there's a number of ways you can use a tiny house structure that is completely legal. And it depends on the actual town. It's not even statewide at this point. So yeah, when people come to me and they have a number of specific towns, in mind, I will kind of help them through reading the zoning code and figuring out what their options are. What are some of those loopholes that that you look for? Well, I'll, I'll list off of a few. For instance, some towns allow campgrounds, and that's an easy way to live in a tiny house for a number of months, sometimes year-round, but not always. There's a lot of different fine print when a town allows RVs or such living quarters. Another interesting one is if somebody has the capital to purchase land or purchase a house that needs renovation, um, there's a lot of, there are many towns which allow somebody who has the skills, who's like renovating a house or building a house to actually live on the property in a mobile home. And so that is one model which could probably be explored without too many um, hurdles if that is along the lines of somebody's um, employment anyway, like if somebody's already a contractor or something like that. Right. Yeah. And then there's also a lot of nonprofit organizations that, you know, might have housing options incorporated that might actually um, fly as well. Right. Yeah. And I don't know the episode number, but I'll also mention um, there are some religious organizations that have used a law called RELUPA, Religious Land Use and Personhood Act, to basically um, put tiny houses on their own property. Oh, absolutely. That's a very interesting point. Yeah. There's all sorts of very specific loopholes. It might very, you know, it's rare that somebody might have that characteristic within them that that would be relevant but yeah farms are another story and something that I've been dedicated to exploring for farm worker housing and I think that actually might see some success in the near future nice so if you were starting over again in Hadley and you were still going to go through that legalization pro- process. 
would you, what would you have done differently? You know? Let me think, what would I have done differently? Well, I don't regret having kind of put the cart before the horse because I felt that that was the only way to have an efficient conversation and to display what I was intending on doing. To talk about this um, theoretically, if I were just to show up as a person and, and to try to just draw the picture for people, I think it would be hard for people to understand and to get behind the idea. So to show someone that's, that I was living to show people that I was living um, a very sustainable lifestyle that was helping the landlady and landlord of that property. I thought I was setting a pretty good example, but I think that I would have put spent a little bit more time talking with people on face-to-face with people that had differing opinions and maybe created having if i were to have created spaces for those conversations i think that more people would have come together um yeah i think so that's a that's a really thoughtful answer i appreciate i appreciate the honesty there um one thing that i like to ask all of my guests is what are two or three resources so it could be like books or people or YouTube channels or, or, you know, what resources do you recommend to our listeners that, that helped you out on your tiny house journey? Oh my goodness. It's crazy to see how many resources there are now. Um, when I first started building, there was not very many at all websites or blogs about tiny house build. So I remember, yeah, just seeing Jay Schaefer in California and his business um which was at the time tumbleweed tiny homes that was one that's honestly where i'd turn to look at how floor plans now there are thousands upon thousands of different businesses who create floor plans and builds and so i don't think there's any shortages of that so i don't know how to answer that question i feel like there's so many models and ideas and inspiration at our fingertips online but i would i would definitely recommend if somebody is interested in living in a tiny house to get in touch with someone that already resides in one and see if maybe they can pay a visit or or perhaps to a a construction a tiny house construction company to pay a visit and step inside and feel equated and that way you can really determine if you're willing to live in that space or like you know what features you gravitate towards that's great advice and and if i may i'll just add you know for somebody considering what you've reminded me sarah is like you should definitely look at tiny you know try to stay in a tiny house try to pay a visit and also in the general area you're thinking about, find there, find the local tiny house enthusiasts. There might be a meetup group, there might be a Facebook group, but getting to kind of learn the lay of the land a bit, you know, well, this town is is super strict and it'll never happen, but this other town right next to it is more open to it. Those are the that's the kind of knowledge that you might be able to get from other local tiny house enthusiasts who have who have already been doing the research before you got into it. Oh, absolutely. I would definitely recommend that. There it seems like there are groups within every town and region at this point that 
meet up infrequently. You can find them on Facebook or online. And I've definitely been in attendance to some of those meetings and learning about people's ideas and their experiences has definitely informed, you know, my next decisions as well. Nice. Well, I have one last question for you. Um, Why did you name your house the Rise Home? Rise Home. Yeah, it's kind of a play on word that a lot of people don't catch. (laughs) So a Rise Home without the H-R-H-I-Z-O-M-E is a root structure for many plants, which connects different individual organisms together. And when I was building my house, I kind of felt like my house was that kind of collection of resources, kind of a horizontal collection of um, different professionals and different materials. And so I thought that was kind of a fun uh, metaphor. And I, I stuck the H in there because it was kind of an easy play on word. Still, not very many people can. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. Well, Sarah Hastings, uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. It was really great to catch up with you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much to Sarah Hastings for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to pictures of Sarah's house, uh, her blog, and more at thetinyhouse.net slash 099. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 099. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.